Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Uh, hello, Richard Watts. Well, uh, happy new, happy new future, happy new year, happy new decade, happy, happy twenty twenty. That's right, that's right, that's right. May our vision, may our vision, uh, uh, never fail us this year. Uh, and <laughs> I just realised what you were saying. That's awful. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's also the year of the rat. So happy year of the rat. Yeah, for thanks. You. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, uh, I did see a rat the other day doing its thing down at Rushall Station. Uh, so I guess it was it was um, celebrating its you know preparing for its uh, its its big year. Uh, does that start next week or have we already begun? Have we is, is the is the you know the year of have we had the the new the Chinese New Year yet? Yes, yes, why the year of the rat? Yeah, yes. good. Okay, yeah. cool, great. I, I think so. I know. Look, Victoria Street was closed for the. Celebration. Uh, the, the celebration. Cool. But that sometimes happens a day or two before because I think they go, right, we have to have the celebration on a weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, we're in it. The rat, the Let's rats, just assume. The rats are out. For safety's sake. <laughs> How was your Christmassy, New uh, Year-y, breaky thing? Yes, very, very excellent. I was down on Phillip Island uh, and uh, ran a cinema, down, an open-air cinema down on, on uh, in Cows, uh, the Cows Movies at Dusk, and that was lovely. We had beautiful people come along uh, to this outdoor cinema in the main street of Cows, and uh, so that was quite enjoyable. Um, and now back in town, back in town and uh, starting starting the the city life of of, of the year uh, and, and and part of that is reading comics and bringing them in here which is excellent um Okay, let's get let's get let's get let's get local. Let's get comical. Let's get comical because uh, this is a sec- this is not just Bernard and I talking about <laughs> talking what we about did in our holidays. Life. Uh, no, that's that's right. This is this is comics, folks. This is serious. This is serious. This is comics. Uh, um, we here on drawn out this segment, uh, which is we've been doing it for years. Yeah. Uh, talking about comics, which is a very good thing to co- talk about, uh, and very funny to talk about visual medium on the, on the radio, I think. But that's excellent too. Uh, I did uh, want to say that uh, the books I'll be talking about today make sense. They're they're from uh, um, last year, uh, in fact, from the year before that. But uh, the first one I'd like to talk about is Abby's Underdogs, Volume Three: Return of the Dragons by Brenton McKenna. Wow! And um, so this um, <clears throat> this is indeed the third volume of Abby's Underdogs. This story set in Broome in the 1930s. Uh, Brenton McKenna is a comic book creator, uh, graphic novelist, lives in Broome uh, of Aboriginal and Malaysian um, descent and he uh, has been, yeah, working on this now for, uh, it would must be 10 years that, that, that the Ubby's story, you know, he's been putting them out and they've been published by Magabala Books. Magabala, uh, most famous at the moment for being the publisher of uh, Bruce Dark, Pascoe's Dark, Dark Emu. Emu. Yeah. Um, and a dedicated publisher of uh, Indigenous Indeed. books, including lots of uh, children's picture books and yeah, really significant and important company. And I love the fact that, as you say, this is set in Broome and capturing that kind of unique 
cultural blend Precis- of yes, Broome, which precisely. is um, it's partially a kind of outback frontier town, yeah, yeah. but it's yeah where I mean the musical Brand New Day was written there, for example, uh, and, yeah, and, right. and is set there. And referent, I think uh, Jimmy Chi, who wrote it, part Aboriginal, part I think part Chinese, yeah, right. uh, but there's also Malay and Japanese influences because of the pearl diving. Yes. It's a, a, be- a, a kind of a unique cultural mix up in Broome. Yes, and and McKenna um, captures that up by uh, Abby, who is the main character, who's a young girl, uh, and she's got this group called the Underdogs, and that's a little street gang of urchins, you know, who are, I don't know, 10 years old and they get into scraps and they, you know, they're always doing naughty stuff. Um, but by by volume three of Abby's Underdogs, the great story which focuses around a Chinese dragon who must meet the Australian uh, paper, sand paper dragon, who's the local dragon. So there's uh, this... Um, mixing of mythologies, I suppose, uh, um, also nationalities. Uh, uh, Richard, you're just looking at the cast list at the moment and by this stage of the series there are so many characters I did need to keep referring back to this two-page spread of, oh, that's that person. Oh, this In fact, it's a four-page spread. Is it four pages? That's four pages okay. of characters. Okay. So we've got, for example, uh, we've got Abby, uh, a, a tough streetwise Aboriginal girl, uh, impulsive and passionate. She leads her gang with unshakable courage and determination. And she does. Uh, but then we've also got uh, Guy, uh, Sai Fong, a seemingly innocent Chinese girl who carries the rare gift of fire casting and can, can communicate with animals. But, but, Richard, is she actually... Actually, really, a Chinese girl. That's that's the question I'm asking you. That's that's the that's the suspense that's brought into this third volume. Ooh, we've yeah, also we've also got a band of mercenaries. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> ooh, this looks good. <laughs> this is an extremely uh, rumbustious. Uh, uh, Action-packed uh, d- conflict. You know, there's lots of there's lots of fights. There's lots of lots of dust-ups. Uh, but it is extremely uh, young person friendly. Uh, it's 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 lots of fun. There's really fun dialogue. It's it's a bit like what did I think? Uh, a bit like Bugsy Malone or something like that. You know, that sort of sense of um, uh, there's a bit of wide wisecracking dialogue between. You know, that the, the bad guys are really dumb. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a load of fun and. And it's an enormous uh, tribute to, to Brenton that he's managed to uh, keep on going with this series. You know, it's a big, it's a big undertaking. So he's uh, he's done extremely well. And it's a full colour comic. It's vivid. It's colourful. It's incredibly playful. I'm getting this great sense of the the not the childish energy, but that. Uh, childlike joy and yeah. wonder yeah. that is exploding yeah. off the pages yeah. and that sense of, as you say, it's set in the 1930s and so the original Abby is the artist's grandmother. That's exactly right. That's exactly uh, and right. And so yeah. kind of tapping into her child adventures yeah. and so then I'm And the legends that you might get down from somebody like that who's played up their, their, their achievement, you know, what they got to do, what they... But yeah. then also tapping into the tradition of Ginger Megs, for Precisely. example, and that kind of uh, Australian cultural comic book tradition. It's all in here. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really great. So that's Abby's Underdogs. Uh, one of the great stories from uh, Brenton, I met him once down here in Melbourne, we were talking about, and uh, he said that when he was a kid, I love this story, when he was a kid, he, he used to get you know, Superman and Batman and Wonder, Wonder Woman comics, but he thought that those comics were autobiographical comics. So he imagined that Superman would come home from a day of, you know, 
rescuing cats out of trees and stopping Lex Luthor and think, oh, well, I suppose I better, you know, write down my adventures for the day and he would draw them. And I just, that, that's such a beautiful image uh, that I I, I, I I think of it every now and then just, just really makes me happy. It's a lovely uh, example of the way a kid's brain works. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, okay, so from from a kid's a comic book uh, made in Australia to an adult's comic book made in Australia and this one is by Bailey Sharp. It's called called My Big Life and it's actually from 2018. The, the copy I've got is a, um, a second printing from last year. Uh, this book, My Big Life, won an award at last year's Ledger, Ledger Awards, which are the awards for excellence in Australian comic books. Um, and so, yes, this is the first time I've uh, come across Bailey's work, but uh, she uh, works with Glom Press, who are the um, the publisher of this of this book, a publisher here in Melbourne, and she also works uh, with the Lifted Brow. So she helps the Lifted Brow with their uh, comic um, and and graphic story uh, selections in that in that literary magazine. Uh, this is an astonishing little book. Uh, it's an A5 book. It's um, sort of, what's, what's that, a sort of an abstract pink, orange sort of cover. Um, and uh, as, as per the title, My Big Life, it, uh, it, it pertains or it promises to be an autobiographical story and certainly it's in the first person. Um, but the, uh, the protagonist um, is... Uh, like a Mandy Ord, uh, uh, first person, uh, it, it's a person with one eye. Uh, but unlike Mandy Ord's thick black brushwork, this is very fine, finely drawn um, uh, uh, comics. And the, the person is sort of like almost like an elongated pencil sort of person. You know, they've they, they got legs and a head and that sort of thing. But they're very, um, yeah, attenuated uh, and... And once we're three or four pages in, uh, we realise that the that sort of existential tone and and not dread so much, but but stumbling uh, uh, discoveries by this by this character as they as they mess their way and also makes little successes uh, of of their life uh, means that we know that. It's signaled to us that this is not a, uh, a the autobi. It's not autobiographical. You know, it, it is literary. It is um, most of all very funny. Um, yeah, she she uh, she starts working in a bookshop uh, with a guy who's just a pain in the. You know, he's just a real um, know-it-all, uh, and she leaves the bookshop. She wanders to another um, another part of town. She. Uh, uh, meets up with this woman, Luane. Uh, she becomes the personal chef for Luane. It's, it's like, yeah, it's it's very funny. And one of the fascinating things comparing this to the Magabala book we were just talking about, this is obviously like uh, artist-made yes. effectively. Yes, yes. Uh, you can tell that it's relatively cheaply produced but created with such passion. It's, it's, the, it's a lo-fi comic mm. but invested in just as much love and passion uh, and illustrated primarily in pinks and blues, yes, which is yes. a, kind of an interesting colour mix. So it's a, on this um, system of printing called a Rizzo. The Rizzo it's a Rizzo print, printed book. So they have quite a distinctive, uh, yeah, and there's one page that, you know, in mine anyway, that's off register. And even that is great. You know, it's got this sort of spill, spill of colour. Um, 
it's kind of quite both an arch sort of book, um, but also very heartfelt. Um, yeah, it's 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 a wonder. I think uh, when. I was given my introduction for, to do for, for uh, Bailey to accept her award at the uh, ledgers. Uh, the, the introduction on the piece of paper said, uh, "Bailey Sharp works magic," uh, and I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a true thing. Um, it's it's a very magical little book, uh, a little book indeed. It's called "My Big Life" by Bailey Sharp and published by Glom Press. And you can pick it up from readings. You can indeed. You can indeed. Um, and just to finish off uh, and keep on that sort of um, uh, theme of zines, which uh, that's what you'd uh, f- put the certainly the um, My Big Life into that zone, the zone of zines, uh, there's a um, festival of the photocopier coming up in February at the Meat Market Craft Centre. And so that'll be on Saturday the 8th and Sunday the 9th of February uh, from 12 to 5 p.m. both days. It's uh, organised by the Sticky Institute, the wonderful zine university that we uh, have in 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 Melbourne. Purveyors uh, of unique goodness. Indeed, indeed they are. So Sticky's, and it's the 10th, the 10th festival of the photocopier that Sticky have uh, uh, organised over the last decade. Uh, and it's the beginning of a new decade of the festival of the photocopier. So it's Saturday 8th and 9th at the Meat Market Craft Centre in Blackwood Street, North Melbourne, uh, 12 to 5 each day. So you can um, go along, uh, meet zine makers, Ask how they did what they did, and uh, and and you know, get there uh, by by comics, but other but other zines will be there uh, on that day. And is there a website or a Facebook page? Facebook for page, yes, yep. there is um, for the festival for, of, of the, the photocopier. photocopier. Um, excellent. Uh, I think that's me. I think I'm done. Lovely, Bernie. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in. See you in a month. We'll catch you in a month's time to talk more comic goodness. Triple R. I'm joined in the studio by uh, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's principal conductor in residence. Uh, His name is Ben Northey and uh, he's conducting a live presentation of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey this Saturday, 7pm, at the Plenary Hall. Ben, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. Now... This is part of a, a series of concert films that uh, the MSO and indeed many other symphony orchestras around the country and around the world are doing. I've only been to one previously and that was one of the Star Wars films and it changes the way you watch the film. You're suddenly a film you know and quite possibly love. Uh, I can't understand why you wouldn't go and see it otherwise if you didn't already love the film, but you're so much suddenly more aware of the the impact of the music and the way the music shapes the film you're watching because there's an entire orchestra playing it live before your eyes. It's a pretty remarkable experience. I think something about visually seeing the music being created that is fascinating for people when they're used to uh, hearing an orchestral sound just literally coming out of a box or out of a television, out of speakers at a cinema, all of a sudden seeing human beings frantically working hard in those cases with those John Williams scores of Star Wars and those films that you mentioned. But it's the best way to see these movies. There's no other uh, way that surpasses the emotional power of seeing a film and orchestra concert. If you love that movie, that'll be the best experience you ever have um, seeing the film. So they've been hugely popular. I mean, they've been going on for probably, I don't know, probably 15 years or something. I mean, they've always been performances sporadically of of, uh, film and orchestra concerts, uh, but now they've become a real genre. And of course, 
as you say, it is a chance to put the focus on this brilliant film music, which is some of the greatest music ever written and it's certainly some of the most familiar. Uh, and people just love it. They're more informal. I invite everybody to cheer, you know, whenever they want to um, and remind them that us music musicians are very shallow people. We love applause. Uh, any applause is appreciated. It just creates this wonderful energy in the room. And they're just great. I just love doing those concerts and, and the audiences just flock to them. And one of the things that makes 2001 A Space Odyssey slightly different to the other films that you might have been doing in the series, whether it's the Harry Potter films, the Star Wars films, James Bond films, uh, is that when Kubrick was... Uh, making 2001, my understanding is he did what a lot of filmmakers do and had temporary music uh, on the soundtrack uh, with the intention of then replacing it, but then became so fond of the classical musical pieces that were used f as temp music, he ended up putting those on the film soundtrack. Now, that, that may be a furphy, but it certainly wasn't. No, it's hurt. true, and it shows you what a maverick he was and also how messy the creative process is generally. And this is, I think, part of his genius was just literally following his instinct at all at all times. And that would have been a very bold thing to do. So he, as you say, he overlaid uh, temporary music, which was famous classical music, which ended up being the soundtrack, things like the Blue Danube Waltz and the theme from Thus Spake Zarathustra by Richard Strauss and all this weird music of um, George Ligeti. Uh, but he also commissioned a composer called Alex North to write a soundtrack, which he dutifully did. And it's really good. I've heard, actually heard some of it. It's online. You can hear 2001 with an alternate soundtrack on YouTube. Uh, Alex North wrote the soundtrack, was all recorded, uh, turned up to the premiere and realised he'd been pulled. So none of his music was performed at all. And that, you know, is what has helped make this movie so iconic. Apart from the fact that it's a brilliantly made movie, the power of that classical music is one of the things that has made it so so, so incredible. Well, for example, the, you the, you mentioned the, the, the Blue Danube waltz, for example, the juxtaposition between a space station, for example, turning slowly, orbiting slowly, and the waltz as we approach it. It's... It's a, a fabulous juxtaposition of science and kind of uh, high classical European culture. And it just, just shows you how artistic the movement through space is, like the zero gravity idea and just seeing a spaceship spinning as it does or travelling through this blackness of space. It's actually very balletic. And that's why I think the Blue Danube Waltz seems to, to marry perfectly with that, that vision. Now, for you as a conductor, I'm curious to know uh, what it's like conducting the orchestra and uh, it's not just the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra but the MSO Chorus are also involved with this performance. But normally as a conductor, you bring your own, I'm assuming from what I know of the art form, you bring your own kind of nuance uh, and emphasis and tone uh, to the performance of a work. So uh, you might conduct something at a slightly, just subtly faster pace, for example, at a certain point or a slower point uh, than another conductor. For a film score, you have to keep the music in time with what's happening on screen. How does that work? How does it change your 
your your performance as a conductor and indeed the orchestra's performance. Yeah, you're right. It's very different than a regular concert. So in a regular concert, it's my job as the conductor to bring an interpretation to the orchestra to communicate that to them. And it's always uh, amazed me that you can hear the same piece of music with the same orchestra sound completely different with two conductors. And it's not just all about tempo. It might be about phrasing, the kinds of gestures that the conductor's using and the kinds of sounds that they get out of the orchestra, how energised or not the orchestra is. But with, with 2001 and all of these movie projects, you're right, you're kind of more replicating what's already been been performed, although I would say you've still got quite a bit of freedom. You just have to know when to perfectly synchronise the movie. And so that becomes another skill. And, and these are very different. I've got a conductor's monitor in front of me to assist me with the synchronisation of the film, which has elements like a time code. Uh, actually, 2001, because it's such an old film, and it's actually shown on film. We have hired cinema projectors to show this movie. They won't let us do it on, on an Fantastic. LED screen. It's great. It's really old school. But the challenge is we can't use any digital technology to aid with the synchronisation, so literally all I've got is a clock. <laughs> so I'm conducting the music along to a clock. I've got points in my score, my notated score, which show me where I'm supposed to be at certain times. Uh, with the newer films, you've got much more information. You've got bars and beats, a counter that you can follow, um, you know, loosely. And all, all it means is you know whether you're either with the film, slightly behind or slightly ahead, and knowing when the important points are. For example, in Star Wars, if you miss the Death Star explosion with the musical cue, you might as well just walk off stage and go home. You've wrecked it for everybody. And everybody knows. So there's nowhere to hide in these films. Ben, is it, is it more limiting playing these kind of scores or is it just a, a different form of technical challenge? Look, it is in the sense that I can't just uh, allow the orchestra to take liberties. So in a, in a regular performance, there are moments where I need to have a firm uh, hand on the orchestra and guide them very, very strongly. And there are other times where I can allow them to play, particularly soloists. I could let them shape a phrase how they want to, take a liberty... Uh, with the films, they have to be with me a little bit more glued, you know, a little bit more closely. And so from that point of view, it is, although there's still a lot of scope to perform these works in 2001, for example, The Blue Danube, it has to happen within a certain amount of time. But it doesn't have to line up, you know, exactly frame by frame as it does with the film. I can still perform that as I would perform it, but I just need to be very conscious of the pacing so that it, it starts and finishes at, at exactly the same time. There are other moments in the movie that are meant to specifically line up with certain uh, visual elements, but this is a very free-form movie and there's a lot of silence in this film is the other thing. So um, waking the orchestra up after a 25-minute break might be my biggest job for the <laughs> night. <laughs> now, I'm curious to know how one becomes a conductor. Uh, it's a very specialised career, unlike... Uh, for example, uh, if you learn to play the violin as a child, excel and go on to play with an orchestra or with a, a quartet, for example, there's a, a fairly logical career progression there. I'm assuming you didn't in grade three start going to conductor training because it's not offered at that age. Uh, orchestras like the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra do run an annual conducting academy in every summer, for example. But how does one become a conductor? How did you become a conductor and why? Well, it, it's a different path for everybody and there's no, there's no kind of uh, 
obvious way to do it that everybody follows. And for me, it was a bizarre uh, pathway and one that would be very unusual for most conductors. I I'd had no aspirations to be a conductor when I was younger and it was only when I was at university I'd been, um, you know, working as a professional musician for about 10 years since the age of 16 really and had gone to university, promptly dropped out to do gigs and then went back and as part of finishing my undergraduate degree I met a teacher in my fourth year and we had to do a conducting elective and he sort of said, look, you seem to have a broad range of skills that would be well suited to conducting. I'm starting up a master's. Why don't you come and study with me? His name was John Hopkins, this wonderful teacher. So that was a sense of right place, right time. But looking back back at it, I always had a very broad interest in the instruments of the orchestra. I was arranging music. I'd had a lot of professional experience in large ensembles and it it kind of made sense looking back at it now, but it felt like just a complete leap of faith uh, back at the time. I was 29, which is late for most people to, to begin. Although I would say that there's a lot of um, mature musicians now who are transitioning into conducting and their careers as players acts as the foundation for them. So I think that's the first and foremost thing is that you have to have a very, very well-developed musicianship and sense of, of understanding of how large groups work and large groups of people. And that's the other side of it is the psychology. So I studied at university. I went to Finland, did a four-year course um, and, and was then able to begin working professionally. For people who don't know exactly what a conductor does, how do you explain your role to people? Because if anybody's... Many people would know kind of something about what a conductor does. They know that you you literally conduct. You can mm. gesture to the orchestra and, and ask for emphasis here or whatever. But how do you convey that and how do you kind of ensure that the orchestra is still given the opportunity for the their own individual artistry to flourish within this kind of hierarchic structure in which you are the, the artistic leader. Yeah, you're kind of the benevolent dictator or perhaps not so benevolent depending on the circumstance. Uh, look, it's a big responsibility being a conductor because you have to make a number of huge decisions on behalf of this entire group of very intelligent people in front of you. Physically, there is a technique to conducting that can be studied and learned, and that's what I worked very hard on uh, when I was at university. We had an orchestra in Finland, for example, two days a week, uh, and we would get up on the podium, be videoed, analysed, see what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong. But really, it's at its purest form in the concert, it's wordless communication through the art of physical gesture. So I have to find gestures that correspond to certain sounds for me. Every conductor has a different way. There are some universals like the beating of time, the keeping of tempo, 4-4 four, four time, four beats in a bar, has a pattern that the orchestra recognise. That has to be right. 3-4 has its own pattern, all of the different time signatures. Uh, but really it's, it's a much broader job than that in the sense that you have to build your interpretation and that requires historical um, study, it requires a deep analysis of the written score to the point where you can imagine your perfect version of the piece in your head and then translate that to the orchestra, which you can do in rehearsal using words, but ideally through gestures and that's the whole the whole job. Which is fascinating to think then from the 
perspective of the individual orchestra members, they each need to learn a unique body language with every conductor they work with. Well, that's true, and it takes time with a new orchestra for them to get to know you and for you to get to know how they respond as well. So it's an exchange of wills. That's how I would describe it. I ask the orchestra to do something. They give me what they think I've asked for, and I, re I reinterpret that, and then we're in this cycle of, of exchanges. And, and that's where it's beautiful because I can allow them to, to have their own personality and to play as well. My old teacher, uh, the Finnish conductor, Jorma Panela, he always said, it's, it's to help but not get in the way. And that balance is what you're striving for at all times. It's, it's a, I mean, I love the job. It's, it's, I'm really lucky to be, to be doing something I love so much. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Ben Northey, who's the principal conductor in residence with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and also the chief conductor of the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra. I imagine every orchestra has its own personality. What's it the does. difference between Melbourne and Christchurch? Yeah, well, they're, they're very different in terms of their scales for a start. I mean, Melbourne is a huge uh, full-time um, professional orchestra of about... I think 80 plus uh, musicians and a huge administrative staff. Christchurch is a much smaller organisation than that. Uh, they're different. And I'll tell you what's happened in Christchurch that's been deeply rewarding is since the earthquake in 2011, the city has embraced the role that the orchestra has played on a different level. And it's because in the face of, of disaster, people need to find artistic um, solace and they need to be together and they need to connect with beauty and uh, all of the emotional range of expression that music can give. And I don't think it's just music. I think it happened in New York after 9-11. People talked about that as well. And the orchestra never missed a, a concert after the earthquake. We found temporary venues for years. We've recently moved back into the refurbished town hall, but it's the orchestra became a, a kind of a symbol of the... The kind of the resilience and the and the spirit of the people of Christchurch, and that has been an extraordinary thing to be a part of. I, I didn't know that would happen when I when I took that job. Speaking of resilience, as a final question, one of the uh, the the conversations globally uh, in the orchestral sector, certainly over the last decade or so, has, we've heard about a crisis in classical music and so forth. And it does seem that one of the reasons for these concert films uh, being rolled out across the world is because it diversifies the audience. It brings in a new revenue stream, it brings in a new audience whom, for whom classical music may be perceived as, as highbrow or inaccessible or simply just too expensive if you're a kind of 15-year-old kid, for example. Uh, how valuable really are these concert films, such as the, the performance this Saturday at 7pm of 2001 A Space Odyssey, in terms of not necessarily bringing in new revenue? I don't want to talk about box office figures. We're talking art at the moment. But do they really work as a way of reaching out to audiences to say, experience the power of classical music and break down some of your preconceptions about the art form? Do, do you see people transitioning from these concert films to other concerts or are they really just a standalone adjunct to the, the main subscription program? It's a very interesting question. Uh, I, I consider the film music of the late 20th century to be some of the greatest film, the greatest music for the orchestra. Uh, so I'm coming at it from a very different angle. Uh, and I don't. I mean, the the barriers between the genres of of classical music, as you say, are, are, are much more um, broken than than they have been in the past. There is an there is a specific audience for film and orchestra, but I would say that there are people who love 
coming to concerts that also love going to the film and orchestra concerts and whether or not people you know, develop more of an interest in in, um, classical music or the music of other composers of particularly the 20th century, that's hard to tell. Our research says that there's not a lot of exchange of those audiences and that's fine because you're either an audience member or you're not. That's what I think is that you're at a concert and the orchestra's performing or you're not. And and if we're reaching wider, that's exactly what orchestras are meant to do. We are meant to cater for the broadest range of lovers of great music. And if these films, and, and they, you know, nearly all of these films are filled with great music, if they're connecting people with the orchestra and a live performance of the orchestra, job done. That That is an audience that is bigger than, um, you know, our regular audience for our concerts. I would love it if people then had an interest and, and their curiosity was sparked to hear more, but I'm just happy that they're there for those concerts, to be honest. Uh, that there are audiences for lots of different kinds of music and, and that's fine. It, it all just adds up to a broader reach for the orchestras. The Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's live presentation of 2001 A Space Odyssey is happening this Saturday, the 25th, uh, at 7pm at the Plenary at Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. There are still tickets available. Jump online, mso.com.au for more details. I've been chatting with uh, the MSO's Principal Conductor in Residence, Ben Northey. Ben, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. My final guests join us in the studio to talk about uh, quite a unique work, uh, The Rise and Fall of St George, inspired by uh, the painful experience of one of its creators. I'm joined by Paul Mack, who is a composer and musician and producer, and Lachlan Philpot, who is a playwright. And, Paul, this grew out of a, a fairly frightening and confronting experience you had during and immediately after the marriage equality referendum. Yeah, um, the, the, where I live, the, the side of the house had, had a, a really nice wall next to a train line and we'd commissioned um, the artist Scott Marsh to do a mural on it and it was a mural of um, George Michael commemorating his life after he'd passed and he was represented as, as a sort of saint in that sort of iconographic tradition. And it was there for like 11 months and then the day after the marriage equality results happened, um, a series of attacks started to happen on the wall, you know, over three or four days leading to its final destruction. And this is the wall of your house. Yeah. So you've got kind of uh, religious extremists outside, not only graffitiing a piece of artwork you've commissioned, of a man you actually knew and worked with as well as respected, but these are people who are basically pretty much invading your your home with their homophobia. Yeah, and it was terrifying because it was like you just, like even just, it was scary being in the house because you didn't know if somebody was going, you know, throw something over the fence or torch it or, you know, if any when you heard voices in the park next door, you didn't know whether it was neighbours or it was people coming to attack and just sleeping those those three or four nights was just terrifying. Every you just didn't know whether they were coming back because they kept coming back. They put the address up on a, on a website, and it, they just kept people kept coming, you know, during the night and day to sort of add their bit and you know attack it. So why turn that <clears throat> obviously painful and, and traumatic experience into a piece of art, a live performance? It felt like a way 
of responding. Like when it happened, I was so depressed with Facebook because so much of this was organised on Facebook um, of the attacking people but also the people organising to defend. And I was just so done with Facebook as as the only way of, um, you know, commenting. And I figured that I, I just I deactivated my account and thought I'll reply with a piece of music. So um, this really cool couple engaged with the guy when he was doing the final act of destruction and they posted a video of um, their interaction with him, which they later had to take down because of death threats. So I took the audio from that with their permission and then started to build music out of that confrontation. And you can hear the neighbours' voices and stuff in it. And to me it was just uh, therapy and it was also making something really beautiful out of something hideous, you know. That was kind of being able to use my kind of art or music or whatever to as a kind of um that just felt like a more beautiful way to respond a more powerful way to respond than you know a comment on facebook absolutely lachlan how did you get involved because when all this was happening you were in the usa at the time so you were kind of not only watching the marriage equality campaign remotely how do you know that i do my (laughs) research (laughs) yeah no I i was um well it's funny because paul and i actually begun working together kevin jackson um you know, the very well-known Sydney theatre practitioner critic um, had suggested to Paul that that we worked together on another project, yeah. um, which we actually had begun working on. But this went on uh, kind of during that time. And I think the, the events of, of the marriage equality campaign, but certainly what happened with the, with the mural... Um, ended up kind of taking over and I think the other project kind of fell by the wayside. There was another reason too, but that doesn't matter so much now. Um, But, you know, so I think we'd begun working on something else and then, uh, you know, we we had a lot of conversations about this and it it, it was so powerful. And I think, you know, as Paul said, it's really important, I think, to kind of harness art to be able to say stuff and to to also bear witness to things that happen. I think, you know, for me it's really important that our art's actually bearing witness to the times that we live in and this is, you know, that, that particular period for the queer community and certainly the, 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 the violence uh, around, the, around the mural and the destruction was something that I felt, you know, would be really, is, was really important to record. And so that's how we kind of um, started working, yeah. But that must have also been quite a traumatic time for you as well because you were also working on the play The Lost Boys at the time, yeah. which was about the epidemic of poofta bashing in, in Sydney in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, for example. So there's real-life trauma going on. You're recreating historical trauma as well. For both of you, this is obviously a, a, uh, a project uh, which has grown from trauma or kind of uh, out of trauma? Has it been a cathartic, a healing, a helpful process to create uh, the show, The Rise and Fall of St George, as a result of all of this? For me, it certainly was because it was... Um, <clears throat> and in some of the music, um, you hear the guy's voice. In fact, um, yeah, one of the pieces that you might play, you can hear samples from that thing. And, and at first, in order for me to generate musical material out of it. I was listening to it over and over and over and cutting things up and time stretching things and putting it through software and sort of creating stuff out of it. And I was just listening to it over and over again and it was kind of like, you know, when you have a fear of flying and to get desensitised you go for little short flights Mm. and then you extend it. I think just listening to that voice over and over again at first it was terrifying and it still is. And on some level when I hear that voice it just instantly takes me back to that mindset of how I felt at the time but it 
slowly desensitized myself to it and gave me some kind of power back over the situation that I felt like I didn't have. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look, I, th- I think it, it's certainly it's cathartic. I think you'd, you, when you when you're creating something too, you never really know that it's full impact until it's with the audience. Mm. Um, and the, the the was a one-off showing in Sydney for Mardi Gras last year, and it was an extraordinary moment. I think because it was just after the marriage referendum, um, because uh, there was there was so much pain that hadn't necessarily been. Uh, able to be articulated in a real space and in, in real time, and so, uh, and you know, there were a lot of people who were part of the community who um, had also, you know, felt the pain of the destruction, had felt the pain of the uh, pain of the whole stupid plebiscite, um, and so the, the the collection of people in that room was was extraordinary, and the feeling and the intensity of that that uh, night and that experience was, yeah, pretty amazing. So you're writing lyrics for the work. Yeah. And Paul writes music and then you've, you're working with uh, the director, Kate Champion, yeah. who's kind of fusing things together and I believe a choir is involved. Oh, yeah. and it's, Also, it happens super organically. Like, Lachlan mm. and I did some writing together and sort of generated these songs and then I was demoing them and I was like, Ugh, I hate the sound of my voice, so I'd call in friends, hey, you know, Brendan McLean or Nairi, can you come over and sing this song for me? And I kept adding and adding and adding more and more parts and suddenly I realised, oh, this is a choir thing. This is a choral piece. So then I found a community choir from the area and um, it's suddenly sort of turned into this choral work with electronics and seven soloists. And the beautiful thing is I wrote it for a community choir so that when, if it travels then we can pick up a local choir. And so that, which is what's happened in Melbourne, we've got an incredible, like, 50-voice amalgam of um, Shout, which is, like, the youth wing of the Melbourne Gay and Lesbian Chorus, some members of the Melbourne Gay and Lesbian Lesbian Chorus, Uh, another one, Yohola. There's a few groups that have come together for this, and it's, yeah. They're really amazing. It's insane. And then uh, it's being presented by Arts Centre Melbourne and performing lines have got involved as well, who kind of then tour work around the country. It sounds like it's uh, taken on a life of its own in a way that I'm imagining you did not expect uh, when you had first were just creating your own personal musical response to the yeah, experience. absolutely. I think I think the, the first, that first Sydney show that some uh, other people came and were quite blown away by the the uh, impact that I had on the audience because at the end of it we did have a Q&A and people were getting up in tears and I think even like in some of the works uh, in a couple of the pieces um, there's samples of you know Tony Abbott speaking and you know Penny Wong in the Senate and Magda on Q&A and just some of the voice bites just fully put people back into that period of that because I think I think we got through that 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 vote and in some ways it was like oh my god it's great that the majority of Australians said yes to me. I felt like, oh, wow, we have progressed somewhere. And, you know, then events happen and you sink down and your cynicism comes over again. But then to hear, like, Tony Abbott speaking then, it just, I think it, it triggers off a deep, deep pain for lots of people that were going, like, of all the events that surrounded that really hideous period. So I think I think there is a lot of power embedded in the music that stems from that That's and it's taken on that life with an audience because they really react to it. And Lachlan, in terms of, uh, I mean, because you're best known obviously as a playwright, but this isn't the first time you've written lyrics because you worked on the show Cake Daddy and were writing lyrics for that as well. Talk to us about the process of writing lyrics versus writing 
kind of text for people to speak in a play. What's the? Is there a different way of writing, or is it just adapting the existing skills you have for a new medium? I mean, I guess we all listen to a lot of songs, so so you kind of have lyrics in you know you know you understand how lyrics work, but it is it can be quite challenging as well um, for me. And I think um, you know working with Paul has been really fun and interesting in that way because I'll write something and then he'll kind of scan it and go, no, that doesn't work. And then we kind of go backwards and forwards like that, which is which is really fun. I mean, that to me is like the, us two working together when we're actually working on a song and we've got, you know, we kind of, when we, we went away to Bundanon um, and we were working together and we kind of write a song a day. So I'd sit down and write the lyrics in the morning and then he'd go off and do his music thing in the afternoon and then we kind of get back together. It's like, it's an extraordinary thing and it's, I mean, it's su such joy because... You can write a song in a day together with somebody. Um, and you can't it can, write you can a play in a day. I mean, no, so it's like it's, the process is just so exciting and there's something to show at the end of it, whereas, you know, to write a play you, you might do a day's work and you'll have like three or four pages if, if you have a good day ten, but they may never even hit the stage, you know. So, yeah, it's really, it's really rewarding and fun. I love it. The Rise and Fall of St George is on at Art Centre Melbourne in Hamer Hall uh, tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, so two shows only at 8pm. Uh, it is wheelchair accessible. Uh, the Art Centre accepts a companion card. It's going to be Auslan interpreted and there will also be audio description as well. On the Friday night. There'll be Auslan on the Friday. Friday night. Great. Okay. So uh, And you can book at www.artcentremelbourne.com.au. It sounds like it's going to be, I suspect, both uplifting and overwhelming because certainly for me... I was amazed and f frightened uh, at what kind of emotion the marriage equality kind of debate and plebiscite reawoke in me. I, I literally started having nightmares about being locked back in the closet with, with actual dinosaurs trying to rip the door down and get me. It was, wow. kind of, I, I was kind of, and I think the dinosaurs represented the Liberal Party. Um, <laughs> but it brought up so much emotion for me. And the day I actually had to vote and tick, kind mm. of, uh, I was shaking with anger that our community had been put through this. Yeah. So it, it feels to me as if in many ways there may there will be people sobbing mm. in tonight's performance uh, in the audience, but then kind of hopefully also cheering and, and uh, by the end of it as well. It feels like it's uh, it will be, I don't know, uh, a balm for people perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. We find <laughs> only one way to find out. Yeah. So, as I said, the rise and fall of St George at Art Centre Melbourne in Hamer Hall tonight and tomorrow night at 8pm. Book at artcentremelbourne.com.au, presented as part of the Midsummer Festival. We're going to hear the track We Stand With Ben. Is there anything we should know about it before I press play? Um, this came from... Uh, well, the guy that was arrested, was his name was Ben. And um, so when the... Uh, immediately after that, a, a sort of hashtag We Stand With Ben came and there was a sort of petition that went up by his supporters. So a lot of the lyrics for this are taken from the comments that were below that, um, uh, that post. We'll listen to that in just a moment. But uh, Paul Mack and Lachlan Philpa, thank you both very much for joining me on the show. Thanks so Thanks much, Richard. Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 